Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 40, Seneca, Bloody Tragedy. Last time, I finished the review of Roman comedy with a look at The Brothers by Terence. Now, we take a step in a very different direction to look at Roman tragedy, so brace yourselves. The story of tragic drama in Rome starts gently enough. We suffer from the now familiar sparse details about the methods, practices and results, but when we get to Seneca himself, we do have a bit more detail, and the tale takes a dark turn, which ends badly for just about everybody concerned. We're moving into the period of the corrupt end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which is perhaps the best-known period for Roman history thanks to the early historians' vivid recording of events and characters and their later popular promoters, like Robert Graves with his iconic I, Claudius and Claudius the God, both in book and television form. Our subject, Seneca, was right in the middle of some of this, and as some see it, his situation is reflected in his art, but before we get to Seneca, we need to step back to the beginning of Roman tragedy. One of the stranger things about Roman theatre is the way that tragedy was never a major force. Having seen its power in the ancient Greek theatre, it seems odd that it didn't find a similar home in Rome, where there was a love of most things Hellenistic. This, I think, is also tied up with the question of why the Romans were so enamoured with ancient Greek comedy. It's a question that I hope we can at least corral some thoughts on as we look at Roman tragedy. In Rome, tragedy started with Livius Andronicus. You may remember him from episode 26 of the podcast, From Greek to Roman, part 2. He was the slave taken from southern Italy, who was then educated and progressed to becoming a teacher. He became well known through his translation of Homer, which, as far as we know, was the first translation of Homer into Latin. About 240 BCE, he was commissioned, and for commissioned we might read ordered, to translate some Greek tragedy and comedy into Latin. The plays were to be presented at the Ludi Rumani Festival, the September Games celebrating Jupiter. He produced the plays and appeared in them, making the presentation in the Greek style, it is said, perhaps remembering the plays that he'd seen as his youth in his hometown. Cicero says that this was his first play, and Livy says that he was the first person to abandon the satura, that early form of recited verse with movement, that might be related to the satire play, and create a play with a plot. Whatever the case, the plays were a success. He seems to have chosen the most accessible of the tragedies, and those with the most thrilling storylines, suggesting that this was a direct appeal to the majority of the audience that was becoming more diverse with the expansion of the city. As we might expect, and judging just by the titles, the stories around the Trojan horse, Achilles and Ajax were his choice of subject. He went on to translate many more Greek plays and to copy and adapt Greek originals, which as you know became the way of the Roman playwrights. This included some comedy, but the titles are more obscure so it's difficult to know how close to the Greek models of middle or new comedy they actually were. We only have some titles and about 60 quotations in later Roman works to go on from this entire output, but they were reported as poetic with passages of dialogue mixed with lyric sections. It's not clear if a chorus was still in use, but large parts of the plays were for solo actors, presumably Livius Andronicus himself in many cases. He was so respected that the Senate permitted him to use the Temple of Minerva to hold gatherings for literary discussions and readings. 
Another playwright of note that you may remember from this period is Quintus Ennius, who is said to have been a big influence on Terence. He was born in 239 BCE in southern Italy, an area where the native language was Ossian, but he would have been taught in Greek as well. He served in the Roman army in the Second Punic War and learnt Latin, which, as he put it, gave him three hearts. Thanks to his war service, where he became known to Cato the Elder, he ended up in Rome, where he initially worked as a teacher and translator of Greek plays. Twenty titles of these translations survive, Iphigenia at Aulus and Medea among them, and suggest he particularly focused on the works by Euripides. Only 420 lines have survived, but from these it's suggested that his translations were quite free and he was skilled at transferring the Greek rhymes and metre to Latin. This suggests his real strength was as a poet, and he is best known for his epic poetry. He also wrote plays on Roman subjects, Sabine women, Scipio and Ambracia are referenced, but these may have been recited poetry rather than plays. He's now regarded as the father of Roman poetry and is often acknowledged as an influence by his near contemporaries and later Roman poets. And so, with a big leap in time where we have few details of any Roman tragedy, we come to Seneca. Lucius Aeneas Seneca. He was born in Cordoba, in the Roman province that is now Spain, in about 4 CE, and died in Rome in 65 CE. His work is all that survives, in complete or near-complete form, of Roman tragic theatre. Seneca was brought to Rome as a small boy and educated there. His father was an equestrian, the social rank that was below senatorial but landowning, and was a well-known teacher in the art of rhetoric, a skill that he passed on to his son. It seems that he spent a lot of time in Rome, so it would have been natural for him to bring his son to the city as soon as he was old enough to commence education. Very little is recorded with any reliability about Seneca's early life, but it's likely that he spent these years in study for the legal profession and he soon became known for his oratory skills. It's also likely that he was asthmatic and rather sickly. In some sources, there's even mention of tuberculosis. So much so that he spent time with an aunt in Egypt for recuperation. His uncle was prefect of Egypt during this period, and Egypt was a very important province to the empire, supplying much of Rome's grain, so presumably he was in a good position to undertake further study and mix in good society as much as his illnesses allowed. He returned to Rome in 31 CE, and the family influence got him a position at a quester. This was in the period of rule by Caligula, whose abilities Seneca was later scathing about, going so far as to call him a monster. At one point, Caligula was offended by a speech that Seneca made in the Senate and ordered his death. He only survived the incident because Caligula was told that he was so sickly he would die soon anyway. Seneca later wrote that he was saved with the help of his friends, so perhaps it was someone with Caligula's ear who was willing to exaggerate Seneca's illness to the emperor with the hope of saving his life. That certainly took the ties of friendship to the extreme. In 41 CE, Claudius became emperor, and Seneca was accused by the new empress Messalina of adultery with the former emperor's sister, Julia Livia. Any truth behind the accusation is doubtful, as Messalina had plenty of political reasons for neutering Julia Livia's support, but nevertheless, Seneca was tried by the Senate. He was sentenced to death, but Claudius commuted the sentence to exile. Seneca travelled to Corsica, where he was to spend the next eight years. 
While in exile, he devoted himself to study and furthered his thoughts on Stoicism and Pythagoreanism, which he had followed since his youth, and on politics. He also wrote three early prose pieces, one of which mentions the recent death of a son in passing. These writings are very conciliatory towards Claudius and express the hope that he would one day be allowed to return to Rome. In 49 CE, Claudius married his niece Agrippina, mother of Nero, and she had Seneca recalled. She secured him a praetorship and he was appointed tutor to Nero. At the same time, he inherited a large fortune from his father and became a very rich man. Only five years later, aged just 17, Nero succeeded Claudius on his death, a death reputed to have been engineered by Agrippina with the help of some poisoned mushrooms. Whatever the truth of that, Agrippina realised that between her sex and her son's youth, she needed good support in government, and Seneca was appointed to be co-regent with the prefect Burrus in all but name. The two men guided the empire for five years, with their influence being at its strongest in the first year. Seneca wrote the funeral elegy for Claudius and Nero's accession speech to the Senate. Throughout his years serving Agrippina and then Nero, Seneca continued to acquire wealth, with at least some of it being through lending money at very high interest rates. In 58 AD, he became embroiled in several legal cases after being accused in the Senate of profiteering from his public position and of being involved in a sexual relationship with Agrippina. Again, the charges were almost certainly politically motivated, but this time he survived the bruising experience and it was his accusers who ended up in exile. But his influence was starting to decline, and that only continued when, in 59 CE, Nero reached his maturity and became emperor in his own right. His first act was to murder Agrippina, and although, according to Tacitus, Seneca helped to justify the act, his days at the centre of power were numbered, and he gradually lost Nero's trust. In the July of 64 AD, Rome suffered a huge fire. This, of course, is the fire that Nero was reputed to have serenaded with his fiddle. As that particular instrument was not invented for another 1400 years, that obviously is not true. Perhaps it was a liar or an owlus, and, more seriously, he is accused of ordering the starting of the fire. All of the ancient sources except one lay the blame at his door, but given the general extremely negative opinion of his reign as a whole, and anti-Nero propaganda generally, that's no surprise. However, he did have motive in his need to clear land to allow him to build a palace, his golden house. But there's no smoking gun in his hand, if that's the right expression to use, while a city burns. The fire started on the Aventine Hills above the Circus Maximus and spread through ten of the fourteen city districts, more or less destroying three of them, as it raged for a week and more. Nero ordered a relief effort that cleared debris and bodies in the immediate aftermath of the fire and then he set about an urban plan with more stone and brick buildings and with more space between houses. He also started to build a grand palace on some of the land that the fire had cleared. The costs of the rebuilding of Rome were enormous, and Nero had already depleted the state coffers considerably, so tributes from the provinces were imposed, and for the first time in Roman history the currency was devalued, enabling the state to pocket the difference. As one of the wealthiest citizens, Seneca was said to have contributed a significant proportion of his personal wealth to the rebuilding project. How much of that was completely voluntary and how much was coerced is open to question. By this time, he had all but retired from court and spent his time living quietly in his various villas outside of town, writing and considering philosophy. 
Among many other writings, he completed an encyclopaedia of the natural world, which is now considered to be his greatest work. If his generosity towards the rebuilding of Rome was an effort to gain favour with Nero, then it failed. In 65 CE there was a plot against Nero, and Seneca was caught up in the aftermath of its failure. He was charged with conspiring against the emperor, and although he denied any involvement, he was commanded by Nero to commit suicide. He did so with all the dignity a renowned Stoic was expected to muster. Choosing the Socratic route, he sipped hemlock as he lay in a bath, and also slit his wrists just to make doubly sure that the job was done properly. His wife of many years attempted to take the same way out, expressly against Seneca's wishes, but she was saved by the fast actions of Nero's own doctor. This is the account, as told by Tacitus, a generation after the demise of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, so it's probably somewhat romanticised, but it remains one of the most vivid images from that period of history. Shortly after his death, Seneca's two brothers were commanded to the same fate. They were well known in their own right. One was the father of the poet Lucan, who was involved in a plot against Nero and had already committed forced suicide aged only 25 and the other had become a senator and was best known for his impartial judgment in a case involving Paul the Apostle. Nero clearly wanted no remnant of the conspiracy left to trouble him. His chaotic reign only survived until 68 CE. Following a rebellion by generals in Gaul, he fled Rome and committed suicide shortly after. He was the first Roman emperor to do so, and his death marked the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, a salutary lesson in the dangers of giving absolute power to a young man. Seneca's personality is difficult to pin down through his life story. He followed the Stoic philosophy and designed the life of an aesthetic. He was said to fast to the point of emaciation and, particularly in later years, tried to live a quiet life devoted to writing. But he also worked at the centre of power for several years and gained enormous wealth. Some have suggested that his fasting was due to a fear of poisoning by his many political enemies and in his writings he argued that the gathering of wealth was not incompatible with a Stoic lifestyle. As Nero's tutor, he seems to have tried to both educate the young emperor and curb his excesses, something he clearly failed at, but also justified the same excesses when necessary. His philosophical essays are dark, gloomy affairs with titles such as On the Brevity of Life and On Anger, but they're still read and studied, which is more than can be said for his plays. I've never seen Seneca performed, and I'll take a bet that you haven't either. There have been some notable productions in recent times, but they are rarely performed now, and we are more likely to see plays influenced by Senecan tragedy than performances of any of his originals. As with the Roman comedies, his influence stretched into the medieval, the Elizabethan, the Jacobean and the Baroque periods. He wrote nine tragedies, all of which were born out of his reading of Euripides. There's one other tragedy, Octavia, which had traditionally been attributed to him. The play is a history of Nero's first wife, in which Seneca himself appears as a character, and modern scholarship has all but proved that this is a later play, certainly written after Nero's death, given that it represents very accurately the deaths of both Nero and Seneca. The play concerns events of AD 62, when Nero divorced Octavia. She was hated by Nero, and after their divorce and his marriage to his pregnant mistress, she was exiled to a small island off the coast of central Italy. There were demonstrations in Rome in her support, but Nero reacted to them by ordering her execution. Her head was delivered to his new wife. 
It's quite surprising, then, that the play was even considered to be Seneca's work, given that authoring a piece about someone so out of favour in Nero's lifetime would have been tantamount to signing your own death warrant. The estimation is that it was written in the last quarter of the first century CE by a playwright heavily influenced by Seneca. The other nine plays are known for high rhetoric, excessive violence and bombast. There is no restraint here, and none of the subtle poetry of Euripides, however similar the play's narratives are. The main feature is lengthy speeches that are full of exaggeration and hyperbole, and it's very difficult to equate the creator of these plays with the stoic aesthete that we think Seneca wished to be. However, he did live in this febile atmosphere of Rome under the mad emperor and his depraved mother. He must have lived day by day, moment by moment, fearing what their next unpredictable violent act would be, and that it might be directed at him for the mildest infringement of whatever went for rules in the royal palaces. It was certainly not a situation that would lend itself to the production of gentle and thoughtful art. His own brooding, melancholic nature feeds into the plays, and as a man concerned mainly with philosophy, it's perhaps not surprising that the plays are full of words rather than actions. And perhaps most surprisingly, it isn't even clear if they were ever written to be performed as a mass spectacle. There is a persuasive argument that it is far more likely that they were designed to be read to small gatherings of like-minded people, perhaps a staged reading after a good dinner to prompt discussion maybe copies to be handed out discreetly from friend to friend. Unlike his Athenian model, his characters are concerned with the worldly and the political, and as such, they can be seen as warnings to Nero and his mother to curb their excesses and save their dynasty. Where passion overcomes reason, the characters compound the fate that was already in store for them. It's a gloomy outlook that sees ignorance and excessive passion as man's greatest sin, because both these faults result in a loss of reason. For perhaps the first time, we get characters who are completely wicked, without a single redeeming feature, not a single chink in the armour of badness. Man, according to Seneca, was capable of being totally wicked, which, again, is perhaps not a surprising view from someone who moved in the close orbit of Nero and Agrippina. Where Aeschylus held the final promise of redemption delivered by the gods, Seneca sees only the evil of men. And where Sophocles and Euripides showed good men and women with a tragically fatal flaw, Seneca sees the reality of total evil in mankind. Medea and Phaedra are generally considered to be the best of his plays, so I'll look at those in more detail over the next two podcast episodes. If his depiction of Medea is born from his feelings about the deceitful and dangerous women in Nero's court, as many believe it is, it must have been a truly terrifying place to operate in. In his version, her actions and rhetoric are so extreme it makes Euripides' Medea seem quite tame. In Phaedra, he switched the focus of the tale from the virtuous, if not terribly likeable, Hippolytus to the grief-stricken and all-but-abandoned young wife. He puts a very different slant on the reasons for her growing desire for her stepson, which is just one of the many changes from the Euripides version. There's no firm dating for Seneca's plays beyond some good evidence that Hercules Insane was produced in 54 CE. That's been derived by the fact that it's parodied in another Senecan work, a satire on the death of the Emperor Claudius, that is dated accurately to late in the same year. 
The plays don't have internal references to other known events or to Seneca's personal circumstances as so many other plays do, so dating is really problematic. The Venetian Women and Hercules Otia are generally thought to be later plays, based on syntactical evidence from the text, probably being from 62 CE or later. For that reason alone, I've placed those two last in the following summary, but no other sense of any order besides that should be read into how I've presented them here. Agamemnon takes us back to Argos before dawn on the morning of Agamemnon's expected return from the Trojan War. The ghost of Tyestes appears, asking his son Aegisthus to exact the revenge that the oracle has predicted. Clytemnestra anxiously awaits her husband's return, vacillating between her awareness of her own crimes and a fear for just punishment. She considers murdering Agamemnon as a solution to her problems, and her nurse tries to dissuade her. When Aegisthus arrives, he persuades her to keep to her original course, and dismisses the wise counsel of the nurse. The arrival of captured Trojans preempts Agamemnon's return, and the chorus lament the misfortunes of Troy. Cassandra uses her gift of prophecy to see the dangers awaiting Agamemnon. When she tries to warn Agamemnon as he enters, she is not believed. Cassandra then reports the events of Agamemnon's murder, taking on the role of the messenger, reporting events as they unfold in the offstage banqueting hall. Electra persuades Orestes to flee the scene before she is caught herself and flung into prison. Clytemnestra then orders the killing of Cassandra. Agamemnon follows the known Greek versions less closely than any of Seneca's other plays. In this version, Agamemnon is a relatively minor character, with Clytemnestra and Cassandra taking most of his attention. There were other Latin versions of this story, most notably by Lucius Accius and Livius Andronicus, so these may have been his model, or perhaps it was his idea to put the two strong female characters front and centre to once again highlight the impact that powerful and unscrupulous women could have. Oedipus is a version of the myth based on Oedipus Rex. It opens with the plague ravaging Thebes that so concerns Oedipus that he considers returning to his home, despite the prophecy about how he will kill his father. Jocasta dissuades him. Creon returns from visiting the oracle and tells how they must avenge the death of Laius to save Thebes. Tiresias is called to interpolate the oracle's meaning further and, in a sacrifice, he reads several worrying signs. He leaves with Creon to call up the spirit of Laius. When he returns, Creon refuses to name the killer, but at Oedipus's urging, he reveals that it is Oedipus who has been implicated. The only solution is for him to abdicate, but seeing only a plan to usurp him, Oedipus has Creon arrested. As Oedipus worries about dim memories of a traveller he met on the road to Thebes, a messenger delivers him news of his father's death. He's still fearful of returning home due to the prophecy about marrying his mother. He learns from the messenger about his likely true parentage, and that it is Jocasta who is his mother. A messenger reports that Oedipus considered suicide, but due to the suffering Thebes had endured on his account, he has resolved to find a slow death and has blinded himself with his own bare hands. As the chorus questioned the role of fate in an individual's life, the blind Oedipus presents himself to Jocasta. She realises she too must be punished and kills herself with his sword. Tyestes is a fairly straight retelling of the Greek tale, but also quite a horror fest. 
A prologue sets up the historic nature of the curse on the brothers and the deception of Atreus to ensure revenge on his brother. Tantalus is brought back from the underworld by a fury to sow dissent between the brothers and Atreus decides on his terrible plan. He greets his brother feigning forgiveness, but a messenger then reports in graphic detail how at the feast Thyestes unwittingly ate his three children, killed, cooked and served up to him by his brother. The play ends with Atreus congratulating himself and revealing the terrible truth to his brother to ensure that he suffers to the greatest degree. Hercules Insane opens with the goddess Juno venting her anger at Jupiter for his unfaithfulness on his mistress and illegitimate children, one of whom was Hercules. He has been in the underworld completing the last of his labours, and when he returns, she puts him into a state of insanity. Megara, the wife of Hercules, is lamenting his absence when she attracts the attention of Lycus, the king of Thebes. He employs various strategies to try to gain her acceptance, but in the end threatens violence when she won't comply. As Hercules seeks forgiveness of the gods, Theseus, who's been rescued by Hercules from the underworld, tells Amphitryon about what it is like in the realm of the dead and of the brave deeds of Hercules. Hercules kills Lycus, but before he can make offerings to the gods falls again into madness and kills his wife and children. After waking from a deep sleep with his sanity returned and realising what he has done, Hercules resolves to commit suicide. Theseus and Amphitryon persuade him to undergo an ordeal of atonement instead, and the play ends as he leaves for Athens to pursue that goal. The Trojan Women uses the story of the fate of the prisoners after the fall of Troy. The play opens with a long lament by Hecuba and the chorus over the destruction of the city and the loss of the heroes Hector and Priam. The ghost of Achilles appears to the Greeks demanding the sacrifice of Polyxena at his tomb to guarantee favourable winds for their homeward journey. The Greeks argue but eventually settle that the sacrifice should be made and that Astanax also has to be thrown from the city walls. His mother, Andromache, has a vision warning her of his fate and she tries to hide him in his father's tomb. But Ulysses, once again displaying his cleverness, discovers him and carries him off. The best way to perform the sacrifices is discussed and it's agreed that Polyxena should be tricked into believing that she is to be married so that she will go willingly to the sacrifice. Helen is persuaded to assist in this ruse but in the end cannot carry it off and confesses the whole plan to Polyxena and Andromache but also makes it clear that she agrees with what has to be done. The play ends with the messenger telling Hecuba and Andromache that both sacrifices have been made. Hercules on Eta is another Senecan tragedy of dubious authorship. It's much longer than his other plays and includes sections that are reworkings from previous pieces. This suggests to many scholars that it's the work of a later admirer, but the play is defended as an original by others who suggest that it could be some form of original that has been reworked by a later dramatist. The play concerns the end of the life of Hercules and opens with him offering sacrifice to the gods to secure a place in heaven, which he thinks is well deserved. In contrast, Iole, daughter of the king and Hercules' lover, laments the destruction of her family and homeland. Dionia, Hercules' wife, is jealous of Iole and debates revenge with her nurse. She decides to send Hercules a cloak impregnated with a love potion. She later learns that through exposure to the sun, the love potion has become poison and Hercules is dying a painful death. She resolves on suicide. Her death is reported to the still-suffering Hercules and he deplores the deceptions of women and his own ignominious end. 
The last act starts with lamentations over his death, but he is then revealed as being raised to sit with the gods, and he is able to console all of those who grieve for him. We only have the Phoenician women in an incomplete version of some 664 lines, so probably there's about one third missing. The play tells the end of the Oedipus myth, picking up the story with Antigone leading her blind father while trying to dissuade him from his vision that he will die soon. When messengers from Thebes arrive from his sons asking for his return, he heads deeper into the forest, insulting them both vigorously. There's a gap for the missing section, and we pick up the story with Jocasta trying to persuade her sons not to take up arms against each other. Despite hearing that their respective armies are facing off against each other on the plain outside the city, Jocasta continues to try to persuade the brothers to find a path to reconciliation. The conclusion of the play is also missing. Although the plays use the ancient Greek stories and feature a chorus, they're not usually seen as direct inheritors of the Greek tradition. With a strong thread of Senecan philosophical writings that run through the plays, the reliance on long, thoughtful monologues and a focus on supernatural elements, but ghosts and witches rather than gods, the plays perhaps owe their influence and tone more to Roman writings of the late Republic than to ancient Athens. Seneca managed to flourish for a time during a period when being near the centre of power could be a very dangerous position to be in, and for him, of course, ultimately it was. How far he moved against his times and how much he took advantage of them remains a difficult question to answer. Until modern times, it was common for his work as a philosopher to be attributed to a separate person from the playwright, and that's easy to see why. In Seneca, there are two different sides to the same man, and perhaps the answer is that both sides were a response to his times, through the lens of his nature and his natural inclinations. The two are very different, but both were the result of his response to a real world, a real world full of extremes that he lived in. I'm not sure that we'll ever truly understand him as a man, and that is not least because it's next to impossible to imagine the pressures he lived under, in what most people would agree is one of the most corrupt and objectionable centres of power throughout known history. As we look more closely at the plays, we may be able to decide if that is an excuse for his excesses and shortcomings, or a reason. Next time I'm going to take a detailed look at Seneca's Medea. If you fancy a refresher on the Euripides version of the story before then, you can listen to episode 12 of the podcast, Medea, Beware a Woman Scorned. And the only other advice I can offer is to come prepared for some strong stuff. It's a play stuffed full of vicious vitriol and plenty of blood and guts. You have been warned. I look forward to your company next time. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com, where the latest offering is a piece on the life and times of Suetonius, chronicler of the life of Terence. Or go to ko-fi.com and leave me a tip just to say thanks. If you have a spare moment, please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other theatre and history buffs find us. Any and all support helps keep the coffee pot topped up and the lights on in the garret, so it's gratefully received. Thanks for the support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.